If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, I just read out of Romans 1, but I'd like to have you turn to Romans 8. As we prepare our hearts before the table, I can see right now that we're not going to get through the message, <laughs> unless you want to stay here to 1.30. Um, the verse that I'm really going to be tearing apart, or the ver- few verses today, is Romans 8.28-30. through 30. Let me read that for you. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. By the way, I read Romans 8 or 1 earlier because I understand that Christians live in ungodly nations. <laughs> and even though the nation can be destroyed, Christians can walk with Jesus. And here's a promise that no matter what happens to the nation, this is the promise that God has to you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, Whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Again, we come up to a very important time in American history, another election, but election that I think will have huge ramifications for perhaps generations to come. And as I was thinking about that, I don't know who's going to win. But you know what? That's really immaterial. Because this passage is true no matter who wins. Federal, state, local, county, election, no matter who wins, this is true. All things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Now, this passage is very comforting. Very, very comforting. To those who are believers in Jesus Christ. By the way, this whole message is to believers in Jesus Christ. (laughs) This message is to those who at a point in time understood their need, that they were sinners. They were sinners because they sinned. They were sinners because they came from Adam and Eve who were also sinners. And the stain of sin has been passed down generation after generation after generation. It's called original sin. And because we are sinners by nature and sinners by actions, the Bible says that we are condemned before God, a holy God. That his wrath is over us is, is, and is waiting for the day that not only now but in the future to send us to hell. But for those who recognize the fact that they were sinners and God is holy and then realize that Jesus Christ came to this earth for sinners. Isn't that great? What good news. That Jesus Christ, God's son, the God-man, came to this earth came specifically to die for sinners, became their substitute on the cross, and he died for my sin. Not just my sin in one, one, one sin. Every sin that I would ever commit, he died and gave himself and paid the penalty for each and every one of those sins that John Prince would ever commit, both past, present, future. And then God's Spirit gave me understanding and I turned to him, and I, I repented of my sins, and I turned to Christ, received his free gift of salvation, 
At that very moment, 30-some years ago, John Prince was made a Christian, a believer. And I was forgiven of my sins, and I was brought into the family of God. And the question is, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because that's what we're talking about. This passage is for Christians. Not those who are religious, those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and as their Savior, who have come to the end of their own works and have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. I liked how one man said, years and years, five, six hundred years ago, not just a Savior, the only Savior. So this passage is for Christians, and it's comforting, and it's encouraging. I think it's stabilizing, it's strengthening, but I think sometimes it's misunderstood. Because again, we've got to make sure that we keep it in the context of Christians. Let me just give you three simple points, and again, I'm going to have to cut this down quite a bit. First one is to fill in the certainty of our security, the certainty or the confidence, whatever word you prefer. The confidence of our security. Now, you say, well, why are you doing this election? What does this have to do with the election? Because I don't know which way the election is going to go. I don't know which way this country is going to go. I know the the common thinking is this. Oh, Lord, you know, uh, if the wrong party gets in, I'm sure that your rapture is going to happen really soon. Like somehow God's return has to do with the American election. By the way, my firm belief is this, that the rapture is imminent. But I have a similar firm belief that God will allow great suffering in America before Jesus Christ comes back to rapture his church. Because his church has been in America for many, many years, and we have killed 52 million babies. And we are the number one promoters of pornography around this world. And we are a very wicked people. And you know what? God wants to have light in the dark areas. And I think God is going to allow suffering here and we are to be the light. I'm not saying he's going to allow suffering to punish you. I'm saying because, because people need Jesus and once we're gone, well, yeah, the 144,000 Jews, but it, it's always curious to me when we think, well, no, he's not going to allow any suffering to us. Like somehow we're better than the rest. The rest of the world is suffering as Christians. Why wouldn't you expect it here? So now you put that little tidbit in the whole scenario and we say, you know what, we have to start realizing that all things work together for good. You know, even if within five years from now, America looks totally different than what it does now, are we going to say, you know, all things work together for good? So the certainty, notice what it says, we know, not we feel. (laughs) The fleshly man wants to feel. That's walking by sight. No, this is knowing. This is walking by faith. This word know means to perceive, to understand. It's used of um, John when he saw the clothes and it says, and he believed, he understood. In other words, when he saw the, uh, after the resurrection, he went into the tomb and he saw, oh, it, it hit him. Got it. I understand. It wasn't that Jesus was taken. It was that he was resurrected. Same no. So the idea is we have a solid confidence in this truth because we understand it's coming from God found in the Word of God. We know. We know this truth to be true. Now again, when times are good, it is quite easy to affirm we know that all things work together for good. (laughs) But what about the other times of financial stress and failure in your health 
or in a relationship is crumbling or the future looks bleak or whatever else. See, that's when we walk by faith, okay? It's easy to walk by sight when everything's going well, but I'm, the, the passage is saying we walk by faith because we are trusting in God. We know, we have an absolute confidence that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are believers. So that's of the certainty of our security. A lot could be said, but we will just leave it at that. Are you certain? In other words, as you're walking this Christian life, is it I know? I know. Not because of my circumstance. I know, because this is what God says. It was an ABF. The question was asked, you know, is your, something to do with, is your joy equal to your happiness? See, joy is, uh, is, is, is what we get by walking by faith. It's outside of circumstance. It's not based on circumstance. Happiness is based on circumstance. It's walking by sight. I'm not saying not to be happy. All I'm saying is what God is giving us is joy. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And that's how we can be certain. We know that whatever happens, by the way, the end of verse 28 says, it has a purpose. Who are the called according to his purpose? There's a purpose to whatever is happening in my life, your life. That's why we know that all things work together for good. And we find that the purpose is to be like Jesus, conform to his image. So the certainty of our security. Number two, the extent of our security. Again, the extent. And here I gave you four boundaries. It's found in this, the second part of this passage. All things work together for good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. You're going to see the extent. The first boundary is, as I've been saying, it's to Christians. One guy said this, to those who love God is our perspective. To those who are called is God's perspective. I like that. In that one little sentence, you find both our perspective and God's perspective. We love God, but from his perspective, to those who are the called. Now again, this is not a promise that all things work together for good to all people. Please understand that. This is not to all people. You can't just go down the the street and say, you know what, all things work together for good. That's a lie to the person that's unsaved. Look at the passage. He says all work together for good. Verse 29, 29, next verse. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So there's five words. Foreknew, predestined. Those he predestined, verse 30, he called. Those he called, he justified. Fourth word, those he justified, he glorified. It's though it's what God it, it's it's for those people that are found in those five key words that all things work together for good. If you were foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified. So again, are you a Christian? Comforting words come to those who are a Christian who have received Christ as their substitutionary sacrifice for their sin, received the Savior. By the way, you might say, well, how do you know if you love God? I mean, if it's my perspective. Well, well, he actually says in John 14, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. So you're obedient. 
fact, verse 21, he says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Are you seeking to be obedient to what Jesus has told you to do? Not, not perfect, by the way. How many of you are perfect? Leave. Uh, no. Because <laughs> you're lying. <laughs> no, none of us are perfect. No, no, but are you seeking? I mean, I find myself imperfect and yet still having a desire, more and more of a desire to want to do what's right in certain areas. And then, and this is what's the neat and both crazy thing about it. <laughs> it's neat because it's like, oh, I'm still on, you know, I'm still on this growth continuum, continu- continuum but it's also kind of crazy at times because it's like, man, but it's like he keeps showing me areas in my life that need to be uh, under his uh, control. I'm 51. I thought I got beyond that. You know, give me the list back when I'm 30 and I'll work on that for the rest of my life. No, no. 51, 52, he's going to keep giving me items to work on. Areas in my life that are idols or not in submission to him. I love God. If I really love God, I'll keep, my, keep his commandments. I'll do what he wants me to do. I would say also to love God means that you love his people. First John says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So I'm obedient to him, and I love the brethren. You love the brethren. You love people. In fact, verse 16 says, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So... Just a couple of things, you know, obedience, loving others, willing to sacrifice to others. By the way, one of the greatest ways you sacrifice to the brethren is using your spiritual gift because your spiritual gift was given by God to you for others. If you find yourself saying, man, I just don't, I don't seem to be growing like I ought to. Get busy using your spiritual gift. By the way, not using someone else's, hoping, you know, like envious of someone else's spiritual gift. Find out what God is doing, wanting to do in your life and use it. That will stretch and sometimes major grow you just in the fact of using your spiritual gift. Plus, it shows love for the brethren. And I would say the last thing, you show love for God if you love what he loves and hates what he hates. <laughs> By the way, the psalmist says this, Oh Lord, I love your law. You know, do you love the word of God? Because in there you'll find what God loves and also what God hates. (laughs) Remember what Peter did after he rejected the Lord and denied him? It says he went out and wept bitterly. You know what that was showing? Strong repentance, that he was hating what he did because it was against Jesus. Do you love what God loves and do you hate what he hates? That's the first boundary. So to whom does this passage apply? Christians who love God. Number two, what is meant by all things and good? Because it says all things work together for good. What are those words? Just a couple simple thoughts. What is included in the all things, I think is pretty obvious, but it's because it's precisely because we do not ponder what God's work in all things that sometimes it doesn't is not is quite as obvious. Okay, man, I didn't say that right. But the point is, is this: all things mean all things. <laughs> you know, we like to think that God only works in the easy times. But again, 
All things literally means everything that happens in our lives. Again, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. No matter how good it is, no matter how holy, no matter how bad, no matter how sinful. <laughs> now, that second part is where sometimes we forget. No matter how sinful, even that, God works through the guilt, the depression that many times is caused because we've gone down the wrong path for a while. He even uses that. That's part of the all things. Good does not mean riches, health, success, happiness. By the way, joy, you can always have joy. But again, if this were meant for that, think about how many Christians around the world that don't, do not have that. They don't have prosperity, they don't have wealth, they don't have health. See, God allows believers to endure failure and sickness and suffering and persecution and grief and disappointment because that's part of the all things. I don't like these passages. It is no wonder that a vast, I mean, a a part of Christianity, health and wealth, prosperity theology is so prevalent because who likes to tell you, you know what, God saved you, but, you know, it might even get really, really hard for you. But that is the truth. It is, it is false, it is, it is heresy to say God wants you happy, wealth, wealthy, and, you know, and all that other stuff. All the prosperity theology. That is so against what God is doing. If nothing else, it destroys people's faith because they thought, I, I, I received Jesus, I'm going to get all the goodies. And then he starts taking them away one at a time. And then the person f- shakes their fist at God, how dare you? So what is meant by good? Well, verse 29 says it, the second part. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good, okay? He brings, he puts everything in your life, allows everything in your life to bring you to the good. The good is to be conformed to his son, Jesus Christ. The good is, now catch this, the good is transformation. That's the good. So, he works together for good, to those who love God. He is bringing us to be more like Jesus. That's transformation. Every situation, the suffering, the temptations, the persecution, the griefs, the hurts, even your own sin is used to bring us to be more like Jesus. How can my sin? Because again, in sin, there are consequences. God chastens us, uh, Hebrews 12. And through the chastening, we start realizing What we really want, and he ends with verse 11, I think it says the fruit of righteousness. Our sins drives us back to God because of the guilt and everything else, and then we come out the other side saying, you know what, I don't want to go through that again. I want to walk with Jesus. So, question, are you more like Jesus today than you were a year ago? Six months ago. Think about some of the trials, the sufferings, the temptations you've had to go through. Sometimes we kick at those, and, uh, and, and yet God has a purpose to transform us to be like his son. By the way, the, tr- the good is not that you end wealthy. The good is not that, that, you know, that you have a happy family and every. Those are nice things, but that's not the good. The good is transformation. Be like Jesus. So you've got to look at your life and say, well, how am I different? How have my values changed? How have my perspective changed? Do I have a greater uh, peace and a greater joy because I'm walking with uh, God's uh, spirit? Do I have a greater love for other people? Do I have a greater hatred for what God hates and a greater love for what God loves? Not perfect. Don't go in the perfect realm. (laughs) 
When you see Jesus, you'll be perfect. But right now, I mean, is there this tugging at your heart and you see, oh, I see how God's bringing all things for the good because I can see how I'm being transformed. That's the second boundary. The second is that all things in the good are being like Christ. And number three, the third boundary of this, are the things used in our lives by God for good necessarily good in themselves? Now, I've been saying this. No. Because... Yeah, sometimes he does use just the nice things, and you got a nice family, and all your kids obey, and man, they they even say, Daddy, can I go to bed? It's 8.30. The perfect little children, go ahead. I'm such a great parent. <laughs> now, rarely it's that. No, no, it's the sickness and the suffering and the grief and the disappointment. And God takes every one of those things and brings about a good result. See, the world is filled with true evil. By the way, hatred is not love. (laughs) Death is not life. Grief is not joy. In other words, we're not like playing some mind game here. All things work for good, you know, good. And yeah, they look bad, but they're really good. No, no. He takes the evil and he works it so that it is good. The evil itself is not good, but he uses it to produce good in your life. Transformation be like Christ. So he brings about good out of the evil. Do you get that? He brings about good out of the evil. So no matter what our situation is, again, financial loss, loss of freedom, um, our suffering, our persecution, our sinful failures, our pain, our lack of faith, our Heavenly Father will work to produce our ultimate victory and blessing. That's what he's doing. And nothing can work against it. That's what he means in verse 31. says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Not only the who, but the what. Nothing can be against us. He has set his love upon you, and I will accomplish what I have started, and we can be confident that he who began a good work in us will finish it to the day of Christ. See, that's what we're celebrating at the table. We're celebrating a very powerful God who sent his son, the God-man, the Trinity. Actually, we're, we're actually not just uh, remembering what Christ did, but really the whole Godhead was involved in your salvation. God's plan, Christ's sacrifice, Holy Spirit's power to bring you to Christ. That's the boundary, third boundary, that all things are used by God in our lives for good but they're not necessarily good in themselves. And then number four, how does it happen that something evil can be turned into something good? Answer in this, the New American, if you have the New American standard, this really brings it out. I'm not sure about the ESV. I know the King James doesn't bring it out quite as strong. The New American says this, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. The word God causes is not in my king james but it is there in the text it's assumed and it's it's laid out in a different way but i like just the direct god causes this all things do not work together for good on their own rather it is the sovereign and providential power of god that works all things together for good praise god glory to the lord see it's him working in your life he can take something that is just absolutely filthy evil and even work that in your life. He can work all things. 
So nothing happens apart from his plan and his purpose. Everything is under his care. It's father-filtered, I like to say it. So God, now look at the word causes. That word is synergio. We get the word synergism. Synergistic. Synergism means this, the working of various elements, think about different elements, to produce an effect greater than and often completely different from the sum of each element acting separately. So you have all these elements, and if you had these elements separate, they wouldn't work towards a a common good. Table salt, sodium chloride. I asked my chemist friend over here, Steve Rack. Um, You know what? Each, those two elements separated, just ingesting your body, are lethal. Sodium, chloride. One's a gas, I guess. I, I noticed, because I was looking up chloride, and they al- it always was attached to something else. Potassium, chloride, things like that. Very uh, unstable, is that how you said it? Dangerous. Put it together, what do you get? Salt. By the way, as he was telling me, both of those are absolutely essential but they have to be combined with something. Now, that's synergism. In other words, elements by themselves are almost like free radicals, (laughs) cause a lot of damage. Dangerous, lethal, put them together, very vital. What does God do? He allows you to have certain things in your life, things that are by themselves dangerous to your spiritual health, but then because God is interacting with those, they become building blocks to your spiritual health. Do you see how that works? See, it is God's great power that can literally use all things for your good. Again, does this bring you comfort and joy knowing that God is able to use all things in your life for good? I hope so. I think it was the uh, old Puritan uh, Thomas Watson who said this. This old guy from 500 years ago or 400 years ago. He said, a sick bed often teaches more than a good sermon. Or any type of sermon, for that matter. A sick bed often teaches more than a sermon. Is that true? Yeah, sometimes. By the way, you need the sermon because that's the foundation, but then you go through the sick bed and you say, oh, I see how it applies. I've been learning about God, but now I really understand. It's taking the parts and then making something beautiful. I think of my my brother-in-law, Larry Wilkie. Many of you know my, uh, perhaps have met him. He lives out in Connecticut. But he makes, he used to make violins, now he makes cellos. He's one of the, he's one of the top-rated cello makers in the world. And I've watched, you know, just pieces of the process, and it's unbelievable how this hunk of wood, and then, you know, all the different processes this master, because he is a master at making cellos, goes through. And what I always find interesting at the end is he's also a very good cello player because after it's all done, he needs to make sure it's exactly what he wants. It may look good, but it may not sound right. Isn't that what God does? Takes a hunk of wood. (laughs) Takes takes a, a soul who the Bible says is at enmity with God, hates God. I mean, and then through the sacrifice of Christ, brings us into his family, and now he keeps working. But you know what? He's like Larry in the sense he knows what, what a good cello sounds like. He knows what a Christian should look like. It's like his son. So that's the goal. That's what he's bringing us to. Never get there completely, 
But again, we keep changing to be more like that. You know, as we leave this second category, let's go to the last one very quickly. Why do all things work together for good? The why. And the reason why, again, very quickly, is because of the five key words in verse 29 and 30. Because he foreknew us. By the way, each one of these are in the heiress, which means the past tense. Like Ephesians says, chosen before the foundation of the world. This starts before you were born. This starts before Genesis 1.1. This is an eternity past. And the word foreknew literally means to know beforehand. Makes sense. <laughs> now some would say, yeah, he knew who would receive him and those he chose because they, he knew that, you know, this... Now, wait a second. Think about who we were before we received Jesus Christ. It says there is none righteous. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who does good. We are blinded, according to 2 Corinthians 4. We, are, we cannot understand spiritual truth, according to Corinthians 2. Our minds are at enmity, Romans 8. And we are spiritually dead. <laughs> it was hopeless. I strongly believe that it wasn't just that he knew I would be around, but he actually knew in the sense he looked at me and his love was upon me in eternity past. And then it says he not only foreknew us, but predestined us. And the idea there is a horizon. Like you destine a person for something. In this scenario, he knew of me, set his love upon me, any Christian, and then destined us for salvation. And those who he destined, he called. By the way, there's a general call in Scripture and an effectual call. A general call is whosoever will. An effectual call means he puts power behind it. It's kind of like Jesus was with Lazarus. Do you remember the story? Lazarus dies, he's buried. It says four days later, Jesus comes. They're all weeping. You know, he's been dead for four days. I'm sure people were crying out, Oh, Lazarus, if only you were still living. But he's dead. But then Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth. And power was given to a man who had been dead four days to come forth. And this word calling has to do with this. He called us not only in whosoever will, but then it gave us the ability to believe. He regenerated us. He gave us the ability to have faith and repentance. And then the word is, he justified us. That means declared righteous. He declares us righteous. He doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. I say that because... In other words, you're still sinful. You still sin. You still have to confess your sin. But he declared us righteous in a judicial sense that your sins would not be placed on you because, again, I just said, he calls us, he regenerates us. The, the wording in between those... See, this, this five words are like... In five words, he gives you the entire plan of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. But in between there, we know other things also happen. After the calling, he gives us the ability to repent, the ability to have faith. He regenerates our heart. And when we receive Jesus, he justifies, declared righteous, like a judge saying you're innocent. You've been forgiven. 
We're brought into his family. The process of sanctification is going on. Those are some other big concepts that you don't see in this very, very abbreviated salvation statement. But he says, in those whom he justified, that's in the aorist, that's in the past, he also glorified. Now catch this. That's also in the aorist. That's also in the past tense. It's not he's saying uh, that you will be glorified. It means that you have been glorified. And you say, what do you mean I've been glorified? Well, you haven't been glorified. But from God's perspective, this is the point. It's a prophetic, uh, a prophetic past. This is the term. It means this. Your final glorification is so absolutely sure, is <laughs> so secure, that when Paul writes this, he says, and have been glorified, aorist tense, past tense, there's nothing that can change it, because if you're in Jesus, you will be glorified. That's why he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. I drew a line. I told the home group this. How can you say that? Because think of this line as the uh, continuum of time. This is time. Genesis 1, Revelation 22. This is time. But this is God. He holds time. He can tell you the, the beginning to the end. He can tell you the whole thing. That's why he can say, and will be glorified. No, that's not right. And glorified. See, we are God's workmanship. <laughs> we are God's project, as it were. I, let me close with a, an illustration. We are God's personal project. read a story about... Uh, uh, cod fishing. And you say, how does that apply? Well, when they get cod on the eastern shore, they have to ship it around the world. And they're trying to figure out how to make it fresh, <laughs> how, to keep the, how to keep it good. And they would catch the cod originally, this is the way they did it. They caught the cod, and then, uh, do we have a picture of a cod? <laughs> um, they would catch the cod, and they would, you know, normal kill it, freeze it, but they found that the, a lot of the taste was gone from it. So they're like, man, you know, you get to market, you're not getting top dollar because it doesn't taste that good. So then they did another thing. They, they got the cod, but instead of killing it, they just left it in a big, the vat in the, on the boat. They would just throw it all in and keep it in water, keep them alive. But they also found that when they did that, they still didn't taste that good. And the meat itself, because there wasn't much movement, by the cod, their muscles, it was kind of like mushy. This wasn't that fresh. So some smart guy said, you know what, when we get the cod, we're going to keep it alive in the vat, but we're going to add in something. We're going to add in catfish. Because that's their natural predator. And so when the catfish, a couple cat, uh, catfish in amongst the cod, you know what it kept it doing? They kept them busy. <laughs> kept them keeping away from the, the, um, the catfish. You, you know, a catfish are representative of the, the problems that God allows in your life to keep your, that keeps your spiritual muscles being flexed <laughs> and being used. Can you imagine how you'd be like a codfish if you were left on this earth with no problems? But see, oh, I wanted you to leave that up. Because what I wanted you to do is think about, does that cat, catfish look like anybody that you know? 
see, God allows us to go through problems for a reason. Again, it keeps your spiritual muscles moving. It keeps you fresh with him, dependent on him. It gives you the perspective that if I am not walking with God's spirit, if I'm not being filled by his spirit, I'm going to falter. Sometimes we want the easy life. But it's really not the healthy thing. And that's why he says, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So think about that catfish and say, what are the things in my life like represented that catfish? The difficult people, the difficult circumstances, my own sin. Think, what are things that are in my life that are actually, if I allow them to, draw me away from God if I don't keep my eyes focused on him, but actually draw me right to God as I walk with him and say, Lord, even though you allow this in my life, I see how you want me to respond and you've given me the grace and you've given me the strength and your grace is sufficient and I see why because you want, to, you want me to keep my spiritual muscles being used. And therefore, you can even look at the catfish and thank God for it. You can thank God for your trials and for the things that he's allowed in your life. Can you do that? As we come before the table, I want you to prepare your heart. It might even be rejecting bitterness and, and actually repenting of it <laughs> because you have these issues and you've been getting angry and frustrated and now maybe you say, you know, Lord, I accept it from your hand because you want to keep my spiritual muscles toned.